2: D-I-V-O-R-C-E. Do recent court cases spell out a changing attitude towards lifetime maintenance awards in the English divorce courts? Daniel Godfrey, who recently separated with his former employer, the Investment Association, argues that fund managers need to simplify their fee structures in his first FT Money column. We're joined by FT Money columnists and Fundsmith CEO Terry Smith, whose company has just celebrated its fifth birthday, but which of his investments has produced a 600% return? And our adventurous investor David Stevenson has a few websites of wonder which he will reveal to canny investors. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's most popular weekly podcast. I'm Claire Barrett and I'll be giving you all the week's money news in downloadable form with the help of FT Money investment columnists Daniel Godfrey, Terry Smith and David Stevenson, plus our special studio guest Suzanne Kingston, partner at Withers, the law firm. Firstly, Breaking up is hard to do, so the song goes, but for high earners the expense of lifetime maintenance payments to their former spouses can be hard to afford. There is increasing evidence that divorcees with a second family are deferring retirement and continuing to work to provide for their first spouse while supporting a second. When the children have grown up, many might dream of telling their ex to get a job, but it appears that the court's now have some sympathy. I'm joined in the FT studio by Suzanne Kingston, partner at Withers, the law firm. Suzanne, thanks for joining us today.
0: Great to be here.
2: Well, Four words that will put fear into the heart of any middle-aged city executive, a joint lives maintenance order.
0: What does this actually mean? It means, as it says, maintenance for life. And London is seen very much as the divorce capital of the world because of that feature. In many other places, there's maintenance limited for a strict term. For example, if you were to cross over the border to Scotland and have a divorce in Edinburgh, it would be a three-year term and it would be unlikely that that could ever be extended.
2: Whereas in London, if they award 50000 worth of maintenance payments per year per se, that would go on indefinitely. Yes. Now, there's evidence emerging that the English divorce courts are less keen on making this type of award nowadays?
0: Yeah, there have been a couple of interesting cases this year. One really grabbed the headlines, that was the case of Right and Right, in which the judge famously said to the wife, or so it was reported, that she should get a job. Actually, I think the reports weren't quite right, Mm. insofar as it was a variation of maintenance case, and the wife in that case had been told several years before that it would be helpful if she started... Moving towards independence and get a job, and she hadn't done anything about it. And I think that was the thing that really annoyed the court in that scenario, right. and thus the headlines. Um, the other case that's very significant is the case of N.S. and S.S. In that case, the judge explained what maintenance was for, and in particular said that it was effectively a transition to independence. Right. And so a wife shouldn't think that it was a right that she should have lifelong maintenance, it was a facility to enable her to transition to her own independence. Right, well lots for ex-husbands and ex-wives to be thinking about there, but
2: this movement, is it perhaps a recognition from the courts that modern life is changing and that
0: divorcees are likely to start a second family? I think possibly so, and also recognition that a number of women have worked previously, before they got married, and could get back into a career later on, although how easy that is practically, I think, is up for debate. If you haven't worked Mm. for a number of years, it's quite hard to envisage getting back into the workplace when you're 45, 50, 55, and the courts do take note of that.
2: And do you think there could be a rise in breadwinner's Who've previously been ordered to pay joint lives maintenance orders to come back to court to try and reduce the amount or even stop the maintenance?
0: Yes, I can really see that. I can see that if you've got a second family, there's pressure perhaps from your second family to think about whether or not you should be paying what you've been ordered by the court to pay your first wife. There have been a number of cases in relation to that. And I think the courts see it very much as a balancing act uh, without really saying where the primacy lays who should really get the award so I think it's a question for the court to establish what's available for both families and perhaps ultimately say to both families you have to cut your cloth accordingly to make sure the money goes around. Well thanks very much Suzanne and you can read FT Money's cover feature
2: telling you everything you need to know whether you're an ex-husband or an ex-wife about these issues this weekend. Still to come on the show, we reveal Terry Smith's top-performing share of the past five years, and here's a clue. It's not a pharmaceutical company. Before that, are you unhappy with the level of fees your fund manager is charging? This week, City Regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority, has announced it will probe the asset management sector, focusing on value for money, the bundling of services, and the activities of investment consultants. This will be music to the ears of Daniel Godfrey, former boss of the Investment Association, who sought to tackle some of these concerns before he was forced out by powerful members. In the first of a series of columns for FT Money about the fund management business, he has fees and charges in his sights this week. Daniel, thanks for joining us today. In your column this week, you say that costs and charges levied by fund managers appear to be designed to confuse the consumer. Why is this?
1: Well, I'm not sure that uh, you could say that costs and charges are actually designed to confuse the consumer. But what clearly is the case is that the effect of a very complicated cost and charging structure does confuse consumers, mm. uh, and that's not good for them. And really, the, the evidence for this is that funds have a very large number, potentially, of different lines of cost, different types of charges, and different funds and different managers do these in a different way. And of course, that makes it very difficult for consumers to really get under the bonnet if they want to, to understand what's going on and to compare like for like. So for example, the primary charge that uh, an investor would think about when buying a fund would be the annual management charge. But there may be a number of other types of costs and charges borne by the fund on top of that annual management charge, such as custody fees, registration fees, audit fees, and so on sometimes these are wrapped up into a single admin charge and sometimes these admin charges are actually profitable in the same way that the annual management charge is other fund managers will run these admin charges in a way that's designed just to pass on the costs uh, that are being borne by the fund manager in this case in order to provide services above and beyond the pure investment management and so it's very difficult to get to the bottom of it and it's almost impossible to compare And that makes making intelligent choices much harder.
2: So what's the solution?
1: Well, I think first you have to accept the fact that there are no perfect answers to very Mm. uh, complex situations, but that doesn't mean that you can't find better solutions and in fact, good solutions, which would give investors ways of comparing funds and ways of understanding what they're getting for what they're spending. One of which, uh, and I think perhaps the most profound of which would be for Fund managers to bundle all the costs of running the fund, what I would describe as the operational costs of uh, running the fund. So, cost of paying their fund managers, their rent, their lighting, their heat, the ancillary services such as custody, registration, the audit fees, and so on. To bundle that into a single charge, and then for them to say, and we are now responsible for paying for everything required to run this fund. And in that way, you have a single number which is easier for people to understand. And people can compare on that basis like with like. But I don't think that this single number should also include the costs of what we describe as transaction costs. These are the costs that you incur when you buy and sell shares, say, in Marks & Spencers or British Telecom. And the reason for that is you can't possibly know at the beginning of a year how much you're going to want to buy and sell shares during the course of the year. And you can't know what the precise costs of that is going to be. And I liken this a bit to having someone come in to paint your living room. They can quote you a a daily rate before they even come to look at your house for what they charge for their labour. But the cost of the materials and supply will be in addition, because they don't know for any particular job how much paint they're going to use, how expensive the paint is going to be. And in any event, if you were doing a DIY job, you'd be incurring that cost of the paint yourself anyway, just as if you were to run your own portfolio you'd incur the costs of buying and selling those shares in Marks and Spencers. And I think beyond that, beyond pulling all those operating costs into a single number, the other thing that we need to do, I think, together with regulators and the industry and with the help of independent financial advisors and the media, is to recognise that the past and the future are qualitatively very, very different. When it comes to accounting for the costs incurred by a fund in delivering the performance that you have received, We can be absolutely precise because we know everything that has happened. We know what the performance after costs has been. We know what that return has been, what income has been received. We also know every penny that has been spent by the fund. And we know that because funds have to produce audited accounts every year. We know what's been spent on the annual management charge. We know what's been spent on registration and any other operating costs. We also know how much has been spent on stamp duty when buying and selling shares and on the dealing commissions that funds have to pay when they buy and sell those shares, uh, whether it's in Marks & Spencers or British Telecom or anyone else. So a complete picture can be provided of what the costs have been in order to deliver the performance that you, the investor, have received. Looking forwards, we have a completely different situation. We don't know what the cost of the, even the annual management charge will be. It's set at a rate of 1%, of course that doesn't mean that if you've invested £100 on the 1st of January, the cost will be £1. Nor does it mean that if the value of your fund at the end of December is £200, that you'll have spent £2. What you know is, or all you know, is the rate of charge will be 1% against what the value of the assets are in any particular moment. And so that's very, very uncertain. And that's why I think what we need to do is to bundle together all those costs we do know about into a single number and state that as a percentage cost because then again it's a way for investors to compare one fund against another. So they can start by looking at that and looking at what's happened in the past and a picture which gives them good information that's transparent and understandable and enables them to make better decisions.
2: That was Daniel Godfrey, former Chief of the Investment Association, and you can read his first column in FT Money this weekend. Five years ago, Terry Smith set up Fundsmith, the fund management business with the aim of providing the best fund you could invest in with the highest return adjusted for risk. Well, Terry's on the line now. Thanks for joining us today. Pleasure. You argue that the investment community is obsessed with a range of unanswerable questions, whether this be when interest rates might rise or when the oil price will go up again, but almost never talk about investing in good companies. Why is this?
3: I'm not sure, but uh, certainly there seems to be the assumption that you've got to be able to answer some of these, um, well, at least difficult to answer questions about macroeconomics mm. in order to be successful at investment. And, and I suppose I would argue that not only are they very difficult, if not impossible, to, to, to know with certainty what the outcome will be, but the more surprising thing is, I don't think anyone's ever proven any correlation between being able to predict these factors, like, you know, the the simplest and biggest one, I suppose, is GDP growth. I mean, how much do you hear about GDP growth or the lack of it or what it's going to be and so on? Nobody's ever proved any correlation between that and the movement of asset prices, basically. So I suppose my answer to your question in the end is, there's an assumption on the part of investors, and by that, I don't just mean private investors, I mean the professionals who manage money on their behalf as well, the sort of fund managers and consultants and uh, financial advisors, that there is some connection between these macro factors that they all ponder and pontificate on and the outcome for investment. Whereas, actually, like a lot of things, people haven't studied it to see whether there actually is a connection. I I can't see one.
2: Now, in the past five years, obviously, your fund's done very well, but What has been Fundsmith's best performing share and what convinced you in the first place that it was a good company?
3: Uh, Domino's Pizza uh, is our our best investment over the period. We've made over six times our investors' money uh, in Domino's Pizza. Uh, And actually there are a whole host of factors that convinced me that uh, Domino's was, was a good company. It's got very high returns on capital, unsurprisingly, because it's a franchisor. So all the capital is really provided by the franchisees, the people who operate the stores. It converts all of its profits, or actually a bit more than all of its profits, into cash. People sometimes think it's impossible, but it generates more than 100% of its profits in cash for the simple reason, it pays people more slowly than it gets paid itself. So all of those convinced me that it was a good company, but there was one absolutely overwhelming thing, and it comes back to the sort of focus on good businesses this.
2: Was it your love of an American hot? Uh, No, no, I'm
3: (laughs) I'm not unfond of, if if there is such a word, of a pizza. It was the fact that the management themselves... Uh, obsessed about the quality of the food, you know, when answering questions about their relative success, because quite a lot of other fast food providers have struggled during this period, uh, most notably McDonald's, they would almost all invariably begin answering questions by the most important thing is the food. And I think that's extremely important. Uh, it's blindingly obvious, I think, when you, when you say it, that companies that focus on getting their products to be the best that they can or the best out there are more likely to succeed than those
2: that don't. Well, a very good analysis there. But good companies are often perceived by investors as being expensively rated. Mm. I mean, how much should price matter if you're a long-term investor like you are? Very little, actually.
3: Really very little. There's a wonderful quote from Charlie Munger, who's Warren Buffett's business partner, who basically says, if you're going to buy a company with very high returns on capital, the price you pay is relatively relevant. And if you work through the maths of it, it is. People often focus on, is it a cheap share, is it an expensive share? If they're going to be long-term investors, really they should focus on, is it a good or, or is it a bad company? I was thinking actually uh, of, uh, of, of publishing a, uh, either a piece or maybe an advert, I don't know which it would be, which goes through all the years that I've been investing like this, which actually precedes the fund as well by some considerable amount. Mm. The, the, the remarks are more public because of the fund being obviously a, uh, you know, a, an open-ended fund, where people have said every single year, publicly on the record, Oh, yes, it's quite a good strategy. And it's worked quite well so far. But I think they're too expensive now. I mean, I think I can get, I can dig out several remarks by commentators of one sort or another or investment advisors every single year that I've been doing this.
2: Well, we look forward to that piece.
3: I mean, I guess they must be right <laughs> sooner or later.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, well, price arbitrage, though, can happen when the market gets its facts wrong. And you've included a couple of examples in your piece for us this week. Now, tell us about those examples from your investing experiences over the the past five years.
3: Well, some of them are very silly. Yeah, some of them are. You know, I mean, I can give you a couple, but one of them relates to a company uh, which doesn't exist anymore, called uh, Del Monte, and it doesn't exist anymore because we owned it and it was uh, it was bid for by KKR, the private equity firm. So it went out of our portfolio. But during the time when we were buying it, it was. Most people think of Del Monte, if, if at all, as, you know, sort of canned goods, uh, canned peaches, I suppose. The man. People of my age, the man from Del Monte. So actually, there were two businesses. One was Del Monte, which we owned, which did do all those sort of canned things. Um, but it also, its biggest product was pet food. And I think pet food is one of the, the sort of two or three greatest products to, to invest in, basically, for reasons I could go different. But it was primarily a pet food business, and kind a of thing which is called Big Heart Pet Brands. and. There's the other Del Monte. They'd split many years ago, back over 20 years ago when Azul Nadir and Polly Peck were involved. There was a thing called Del Monte Fresh Foods. That's what the man from Del Monte is. That's the import of bananas ended up. and pineapples. Sorry?
2: <laughs> That's where he ended up. That's where he ended up.
3: Yeah. We were buying Del Monte, the, uh, the pet food business primarily, when up on the screen flashed in the news channel uh, on Bloomberg against it uh, Galveston dock workers go on strike, Del Monte ships, you know, not unloaded, fruit-rotting, disaster kind of uh, scenario, and the share price fell out of bed. And uh, the interesting thing about that, of course, is, is it was the wrong Del Monte, <laughs> the wrong
2: company. <laughs> Comparing apples with <laughs> pears, you could say. Indeed,
3: uh, but uh, uh, it's a mad world. Things like that do happen from time to time, where people just simply pick the, the wrong company. Um, uh, and and uh, what I always do in those circumstances is, you know, sort of sit down with a cup of tea and ring my of my, uh, my research junior I've worked with for nearly 30 years and say, have we gone completely mad or is it them? Uh, and, and more often than not, actually, the answer is them rather than us, although we have our, our, our episodes as well, obviously.
2: Well, thanks very much there, Terry. You can read Terry Smith's full article detailing all of his experiences um, over the past five years of um, running the Fundsmith Equity Fund in this weekend's edition in, of FT Money. That was Terry Smith, the founder and chief executive of Fundsmith, and FT Money columnist. Before our final item, a reminder that you can read this week's FT Money as part of the Weekend FT, widely available on both Saturday and Sunday, or read us online, ft.com money, and follow us on Twitter, at ftmoney. Now, it's not just novel stock-picking ideas that come across the radar of David Stevenson, our adventurous investor. He's also been scouring the internet this week in search of brain food for sourcing his eclectic range of investment tips. David, welcome to the studio. I'm nice to have you here, thank you. Firstly, tell us about a new value investing tool that you've found online, which carries the added attraction for our readers of being free to use.
4: We always like free stuff, don't we? Yeah. And I, think, I think the thing is as well, with free stuff quite often, you get a lot of free stuff and it's not much good, actually. That's the problem. I mean, obviously, you pay for quality like the FT. Of course. Of course. And the problem is a lot of free stuff. It's just an agglomeration of information. And the thing that I always look for with a good free site is, is, in, is kind of incisive analysis, something that you don't get anywhere else. And the thing about the particular challenge that I write about this week, or one of them I talk about, is asset allocation and value investing. Now, those two words don't necessarily go together, and they sound quite complicated, don't they? But asset allocation is simply trying to make sure that you've got the right kind of mix of kind of asset classes or kind of UK, US, Europe, that kind of stuff in your portfolio. And then values normally tended to be orientated towards stock pickers. So asset allocation, you tend to buy big funds, ETFs, and value investing, you tend to buy iconoclastic, idiosyncratic managers who buy individual stocks. But that does come together in a new website from a fantastic American firm called Research Affiliates, run by a great analyst called Rob Arnott. And so he's built this asset allocation microsite. And what he's basically done is he's taken the best bits of kind of asset allocation, which is you've got to make sure you've got the right mix between fixed income and equities. You've got the the right geographical mix as well. So he's taken those ideas, and then he's also taken these ideas about which of these individual asset classes represents good value. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we sort of know that intuitively. When we talk about the FTSE 100, we quite often talk about you know the combined earnings of the FTSE 100 means that P ratio, price-to-earnings ratio, which is a kind of measure of value, is low or high. And it's quite low at the moment, and the dividend yield is quite high because shares have not been doing too well in the UK versus the US. And so you apply that value thinking to a whole marketplace, and you could begin to put together a portfolio, which is based around valuation ideas, and be properly diversified. And he's done it on a website, which does it in a very simple, interactive style. Nice charts, even I can get my head around after without a cup of tea in the morning. And it sort of makes sense. At Proviso, you have to put to all of it, is a massive, massive pinch of salt. In fact, a bowl full of salt is... Who knows what will happen in the next 10 years? But based upon what he does is there's a valuation metric that goes behind it, which says how markets are valued in relative terms to something called the cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio. It sounds complicated, but it does actually work. And over the long, long, long term, there's this does make sense because there's this idea of mean to reversion. And it simply is if something becomes horrendously overpriced over the long term, 10 years, it will revert back to the mean. And it will eventually, it will underperform because it's expensive. And that's really the motivating idea behind it. It's cracking websites. free, very easy to get your heads around. very well explained. And it's a great addition. I wish more investment firms would do it.
2: Okay, so that one's research affiliates. But mm. you've also looked at another web pick based on, well, more on reported facts, which is an aggregator yeah. called Vox.
4: Yeah, now that's what interesting What does that one. do? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I like aggregator websites because, and I think most ordinary investors use aggregator websites a lot, because you want both the tables, the charts, the prices, but you also want some commentary. And bulletin boards, for instance, bulletin boards are a fantastic piece of the private investing landscape in the UK. And in fact, if you look at it, some of the most vibrant stuff comes out of the bulletin boards. But the bulletin boards, I mean, bulletin board technology is really ancient. I can remember being, wow, you could just online kind of board where you can post messages it's 15 20 years old a lot of this technology and so how is vox different vox is different because it takes the idea of social networking social media so what it does it takes the idea that actually most, much of the most interesting stuff out there is coming in off tweets okay and and so you you agglomerate the tweets and then this is the other crucial idea which is that what's so powerful about facebook my daughter tells me you know, i'm a big fan of it but she tells me the timeline idea that you've got your timeline of stuff that's relevant to you which includes other messages facebook doesn't include tweets but but that timeline idea could do you have a timeline idea of a company you're following and you can see a timeline of all the comments about it and you can also see in that timeline rns results you can see the charts and all the usual kind of stuff you sort of need and that strikes me as quite an interesting idea because i don't know about you but whenever i've tried to find out about a company a particular company i've gone to the really big bulletin boards they've got great traffic and great comments Mm. on i spend half of my time just fishing around trying to work out where the where the wretched comments are and what the interesting comments are you have to go down the page and you know it's it's quite hard work it's a lot of sifting for a lot of sifting for not a lot of gold at the end of it and what's quite nice about the vox approach is it's kind of built for the facebook generation in a sense that it's got that timeline approach and i really like that i think it's quite a neat way of doing stuff and also I mean, with the best way in the world, I mean, ADVF Inferences, which is a great website, does very, very well in traffic, it it is a bit messy, and it is a bit Mm. old-fashioned. But uh, this website absolutely does. You can go to it, and you can really quickly look at it, and you can get to what you want. And I think that's really important, because we don't have a lot. We don't have hours to sit around trying to find out about our favourite companies. We've got 10 minutes. And that's where this approach comes in. It's very interesting.
2: Well, thank you for spending some of the minutes of your day with us. That was David (laughs) Stevenson, our resident adventurous investor. And you can read all about his column in this week's FT Money, including another website which links an old city name with a new method of investing well we'd love to know what you think about fund manager fees the changing nature of divorce settlements or about money matters more generally you can get in touch with us via email or addresses money at ft.com or you can tweet us at ftmoney, and you can leave comments at the foot of individual articles on our website at ft.com money there's just time to tell you what else is in this weekend's edition we will be looking forward to what's in next Wednesday's autumn statement and what it could bring for investors. Plus, we've shared tips from our sister publication, The Investor's Chronicle, and the latest director's deals. The Money Show is produced and edited in London by Naomi Rovnik. We'll be back next week, but for now, it's goodbye from me, Suzanne Kingston, Terry Smith, Daniel Godfrey, and David Stevenson. Goodbye.
3: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat rounded textured or tall whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right because rust-oleum's new custom spray five-in-one gives you control with five different spray patterns so you can tackle nooks crannies edges and curves without worrying about drips runs uneven coverage or anything else custom spray five-in-one only from rust-oleum selling a little or a lot